0: Well, welcome to our ninth episode of Ideas and Lives, and uh, we're really thrilled today to have Tom Buick, uh, a good friend, and he'll be our youngest guest on the program. Wow. And Svi uh, Bodhi is a financial economist, our my co-host on this uh, Ideas and Lives uh YouTube channel and podcast.
1: I guess I'm the oldest person who's been.
0: Uh, yeah, you're older than me, but I, uh, Dave, I think, might beat you. Oh, One that's of okay. our interviewees, uh, I think, would, would beat you. But uh, Tom Buick, I, I've known Tom for, uh, I don't know, what, seven years, maybe? Tom uh, came to the United States, and we bonded immediately, and... Uh, We've run several uh, transatlantic uh, forums on apprenticeship uh, over the years. And um, unfortunately, with COVID, we haven't had the chance uh, to meet live uh, as much as we were doing. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, Tom is an extremely interesting fellow. Uh, He is CEO of the Federation of Awarding Bodies in the UK, and we'll get into that. He's going to have um, to
1: explain what that is. He'll
0: explain what that is. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, and, and I'll explain
0: some space. other things for some of our American uh, watchers and listeners about the UK uh, system of O-levels and GSCEs and all these levels. Um, and uh, But we are really interested in, as, as the uh, label says, uh, the arc of Tom's life and career uh, and his ideas moving forward and uh, how they've evolved. So, Tom, welcome.
2: Thanks, Bob. It's great to see you, albeit two-dimensional, and of course, to meet Svee as well for the first time um, via Zoom. And uh, look, you know, what I miss probably more than anything about not seeing you, Bob, is these long car journeys that we've been on in often various Various parts of the world, you know, whether it's on the road from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, we've had some great chats or whether we've been up to Shakespeare's birthplace here in England and we've talked about all sorts of things from apprenticeships to Anti-Semitism and Jeremy Corbyn, I think, was one conversation we had, um, or indeed the many times, and I miss it dearly uh, that I've been in the United States with you, with your colleagues, with friends at the Department of Labor, and across the U.S. talking about skills and apprenticeships. So. It's just fantastic to be able to meet you both and talk to you about uh, ideas and lives. I hope I can come up with something even half interesting as your life, Bob, for sure. Oh
0: no, no, your life is extremely interesting. Well, and-
2: you two you two guys know
1: each other too well. You're gonna have to introduce me
0: to the real questions.
1: This this is my opportunity to learn about the, the world of uh, let's call it vocational
0: education and apprenticeship. Yeah. So, Tom, let's let's talk about how you got started, um, your early education. Um, you, know, you had a little tough going there with uh, you know, losing a parent and uh, not uh, having the easiest time growing up, but maybe there were some positives coming out of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, look, I had quite an adverse childhood like uh, so many people um, around the world but I obviously took a lot from it and uh, you know growing up I was born by the way in uh, if you if you had a map of Britain and you put a pin in the middle of England that's very close to where I was born and and grew up in a place called Coventry so it's probably famous for two things really I mean it's the equivalent of the Detroit of the motor industry even today actually um, here in the UK uh, makes the famous Jaguar uh, motor cars has done over many many uh, decades. Uh, initially, actually, it was the centre of bicycle manufacture just after the first industrial revolution, and then obviously when the petrol combustion engine came along, they uh, upgraded uh, to cars. And not surprisingly, it's a place now that's the centre of new battery technology uh, for motor vehicles mm. as well. So, I'm quite proud in that sense. You know where I was born in the English Midlands. Um, It's also kind of very famous as well for being one of the most bombed cities during Second World War, which is why Mm. it's not particularly a a pretty city to visit these days, because the Luftwaffe managed to completely flatten it during World War II. So it's, uh, alas, sort of a a city that's in the throes of modernism, but at the same time still got a lot of that sort of post-war brutalist uh, architecture but my mother I, I, you know, died of a heart attack I was quite uh, a young age uh, I was in the care of my father for a, a couple of years um, let's just say you know he had rather too fond a relationship with gambling and with the booze which kind of made him a not very uh, attendant father and it was only a matter of time really before I found myself in local authority care and being brought up by foster parents. Had what, lots of- uh, what, you
0: know, what was your father's uh, occupation? Did he have an occupation?
2: Well, uh, you know, uh, we have this very peculiar thing in this country. Um, it's called the Register General Scale, and it's actually a, a classification of class that sociologists use. So we have a, mm. and it's a classification of one to, um, one to five. So when you look at my birth certificate, actually it says father's occupation it actually um, has the words uh, refuse attendant. In other words, my father had probably one of the sort of you know lowest paid, lowest skilled jobs. But in, uh, next to it, it it actually says um, register general uh, five, a uh, classification five, which means in terms of this social class scale, uh, my father was at the bottom of the scale. And what's interesting now, when I look at my my own children's um, Certificates is, of course, they still do. I'm this, a CEO, yeah. I've been the director of companies for most of my adult life, and it says Register General's classification one. So, from a British sociological social ah. mobility story, <laughs> in one generation, I've gone from being classified as five to one in terms of the Classification wow. scale that sociologists use in this country to right, measure right. Um, intergenerational social mobility, which is right. probably one of the reasons why that's an area I'm so passionate about and got some quite strong <laughs> views about. Which is something I'd like to talk to you about. And
1: that's, that's very interesting. I mean, the English are have always been at least in the last few hundred years very class conscious, and I didn't realize they had a numerical scale.
2: Yeah, we have this numerical scale. It, 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 um, as I say, it is used as a, an official measure of uh, social mobility. We have a formal commission, actually, um, uh, the British government has called the Social Mobility Commission, and they use that regist- registrar uh, classification as sort of taxonomy of social class, but they also are using other survey data, household Wait, I, data uh, uh, page is this as well. still existing? It still exists. It's still, so it's still used. still you.
0: children's birth certificate, we'll say a four or a five or something?
2: Yeah, you can. Yeah. So when I had to put down my occupation, just like you have standard industry classification codes, we yeah. also have, obviously, occupations are mapped against the Register General's classification in terms of social class. And anything company director or CEO would be mapped across to number one, yeah.
1: So on these uh, on these dating websites, you know, the matchmaking, <laughs> does, is that something that, the, you know, everybody pays attention to?
2: Well, looking for
1: number one.
2: Yeah. Sweet. I know you announced me as uh, Bob did as uh, your youngest. Uh, interviewee so far, but I, I, I'm afraid the dating apps uh, rather passed me by. I'm a 50 year old, so um, I was fortunate. You know, depending on how you look at it, to to have been more in the the old, your good old fashioned dating where you actually had to go out to places and meet people uh, if you wanted to date. So yeah, there was no swiping left or right or any of these online dating sites. Well, I, I'm you know I'm I'm sure these sorts of classifications will be used by the dating agencies, but I think. You know, on a serious point, um, both of you, I mean, why I think it's, and you actually alluded to this, sphere. Uh, you know, about Britain's almost immovable class system, which, of course, goes, you know, in many ways, actually, back to the Norman Conquest. I, could, I don't want to sure. go down too much of a, a rabbit hole, but if you think about this great date in British history and English history in particular, 1066, it was a conquest, not just of uh, warring, European nobilities, you know, one on uh, the French side of the Channel in Normandy, and the remnants of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms here in Britain. But actually, was for 300 years a takeover of language and culture. You know, the language of the nobility, the language of the hierarchy, the the, the language of the elites was was Norman French for 300 years. So, the class system, in many ways, falls out of a obviously a feudal system uh, of uh, landowners and peasantry, but it also, why I think it's particularly affects Britain and it's very hard to shake off is because ultimately it's, it's also grounded in um, a conquest where whether it's north and south of the country or the, the landowners versus the, the non-landowners, that class system has never really gone away. Now, since the Second World War, obviously, there's been great progress and great efforts, particularly in the field of education, to introduce more of a meritocracy uh, in Britain. And of course, you have seen more what you might call your traditionally working class people, people from that uh, you know uh, scale uh, five, numerical five, um, you know, become socially mobilised. They've professionalised. They've got jobs in in government, um, but we have, you know. It, The way I look at it is we've kind of replaced a very crude social class system, which was governed very much by even your accent, your dialect, where you lived in the country, your relationship to land ownership. I think on the whole, that kind of crude social class system has been replaced by more of a meritocracy. But that meritocracy itself has not really resulted in... uh, you know, rapid intergenerational social mobility on the scale that it has in the United States, where there is still this remnants, this ideal, isn't there, of the American dream that you can be, you know, from very, very poor surroundings and get to the very top of companies, the very top. Well, of companies.
1: In America, everyone is middle class.
2: <laughs> yeah, and but, uh, um, yeah,
0: you know, there are uh, there are disputes about how. how mobile we really are Um, but I'd like to come back uh, to you Tom and uh, we'll relate it to what you just talked about and that is um, getting into your uh, college uh, period and uh, the fact that uh, one other element of the class system and, and, and leadership system in the UK is uh, uh, an education at Oxford or Cambridge um, seems to be a very high uh, correlation between that and say people in the parliament and uh, in other areas. I don't know whether that's still true. No. uh, How did that affect you that you were not, what did you do and how did it affect you that you were not a, a part of the Oxbridge
2: uh, system well it's quite a bit to unpack there bob but let's um i mean I, and in some ways i was alluding to it when i talked about you know there has been a breakdown of a crude social class system in britain but i do think it has been replaced by what you know some writers and commentators have called the almost the brahmin oxbridge caste system you know so if you think about india which has a very rigid caste system um what we've got when you particularly look at access to top jobs in Britain, you know, to what some might call elitist occupations in the judiciary and the military members of parliament. Um, and I would encourage actually your watchers, if they want to sort of really look into the detail around this, to actually uh, Google uh, a report called um, Elitist Britain, which was actually commissioned by the government. It was commissioned by the Social Mobility Commission but it was undertaken by a uh, a think tank called the Sutton Trust this is a particular non-profit that looks at uh, social mobility and it was published in 2019 so it's a relatively uh, up-to-date report I've actually just got just a couple of stats uh, for you both because I think they're a very um, instructive way into this debate to really sort of understand just how in some ways little progress you know we're making for a quality of opportunity here in Britain. So if you imagine uh, 7% of the population are privately educated, and of that 7% that are privately educated, uh, roughly 1% uh, of the population are graduates of Oxford and Cambridge. Um, But in terms of what that track of students, if you like, represents in British public life, 29% of members of parliament, privately educated, it goes up to 57% in the House of Lords. And actually, there's been an 8% increase in the number of uh, privately educated uh, members of the House of Lords just since 2014. Um, so, Tom, when you
0: say privately educated, I mean, here yeah,
2: in the U.S., we
0: have this image of uh, kindergarten to 12
2: uh, Yeah, so I'm talking about schools. from, yeah, is, so I'm talking about- Is that what
0: you're talking about?
2: Yeah, I'm talking about just the phase of what you might call compulsory education. Seven mm-hmm. percent um, of the population are educated yeah. uh, in private school. By the way, you know, I don't have a problem um, with independent uh, schools. I, I've I've always taken quite a libertarian view that parents ultimately should have the right to educate their children in whatever way they see fit. I don't believe in uh, you know, a holistic 100% state education system. But what I do have a real problem with is, is is this link, this very unhealthy link between the fact that we've got a very small proportion of the population that are privately educated in the compulsory system, uh, the fact that graduates of Oxford and Cambridge only account for 1% of the population, yet they appear, as I say, you know, 40% of the British cabinet is from just those two universities. Um, 44% of our national newspaper columnists, uh, you know, these are important people because they shape a national conversation. Um, you know, 59% of civil service permanent secretaries. So, okay, we have a different system of government, as you know, as, as a parliamentary democracy, uh, we have a number of ministers and then we have a permanent civil service. We don't have this huge changeover of personnel that you have in the federal United States system when you have a change of president with an executive uh, that's appointed at all the top tier um, positions by the president. So we have this thing called the permanent civil service. And, you know, the highest uh, position, elected position is a permanent secretary of, say, the Department for Education or the Department of Health or the Home Affairs, Foreign Affairs Department nearly 60% of those permanent secretaries went to Oxbridge. So you start to see how 1% of the educated population is accounting for 60% of the permanent government wow. of the country. So it's a yeah, very, that very small, yeah.
0: that it's a very, very
2: level. Um, small gene pool. And by the way, Bob, you know, I mean, I failed my qualifications at school um, in the compulsory phase and... You know, via working in a supermarket, I came back to night school. and But even I'm considered to have gone to an elite university. I mean, I went to the University of Bath. It's in the top five universities uh, in the country after Oxford, Cambridge, University College, London, the London School of Economics. And then, uh, you know, the University of Bath is next. And so, you know, even I would be considered to have gone to an elitist university. Uh, University. When you look at you know the graduation routes, uh, well, at least the, you know uh, in a prior
0: generation in the United States, City College and Brooklyn College in New York City uh, were responsible for an inordinate amount, at least, of, uh, of intellectuals, of scientists. I think Kenneth
2: Arrow, sure, uh, and,
0: and, and, and a whole number and again, of them.
2: Yeah, and again, I, I mean, look, you know, when you look at the top ten universities in the world according to the global rankings. Uh, Five of them are from the United States. Obviously, they include MIT, Harvard, Stanford University, University of California. Um, And they include four British universities, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, University College London, and uh, Imperial College London. And there's only one uh, university globally in the top 10 that's not either from the United States or from the UK. And that's the... Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich in Switzerland so you know I, I, I'm I'm always very careful not to be seen to be knocking these universities these ancient universities um, you know I think there is a place in society for these world-class universities particularly where they are engaged in world-class teaching world-class research obviously we have an open society so we want the best academics uh, from around uh, the world look at the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, vaccine you know was pioneered by um, those scientists at Oxford University so you know I don't take if you like the um, you know there was that big debate wasn't there in France with uh, President Macron is has been talking about closing down the Ecole Nationale mm. administration because there's again France has a very similar challenge where when you look at the governance of the country and you look at where the talent has been drawn from it's 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 a very very small gene pool but i don't think the answer is to you know abolish oxford or cambridge likewise i don't think the answer is to abolish private education i think what we've got to try and do is you know given that government is the employer right you know government has decided to employ permanent secretaries of government departments and 60 percent of them come from a very very small gene yeah. pool in terms of their educational experience. So I think it's within government's gift, when it recruits, to diversify the talent pool that it's drawing those, uh, you know, the yeah. talent expertise <clears throat> from, is how well, I feel. Well, you, talk about, you right. talk about the uh,
1: higher education, but uh, the... Uh, you're saying it's also at the level of compulsory. In other words, K through 12. I assume. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so,
2: yeah, so K through 12, we have 93 percent of the population under the age of 18 is educated by the state. They're in they're in publicly funded institutions, uh, and obviously there's a debate about how good those institutions are and depending on where you live. And, you know, we have different types of uh, uh, schools. uh, There's quite a bit of diversity in terms of publicly funded schools. Uh, But then we also have 7% of the population where parents have decided themselves, to be fair to those parents, I mean, by the way, it's why I'm not really anti-private school, I'm not anti-independent school, because after all, you know, they've paid their taxes once. They've decided to, in effect, pay twice to... Uh, pay for their offspring to go to these. What are very confusingly, uh, I know to an American audience. Yeah, sometimes they're called public, public they're called public schools, and of course they're not public in the sense of publicly funded at all. They're privately funded. That's why I'm using just to be clear on this call, using the language of these. The seven percent of the population are privately educated, but when you see that seven percent, then dis- disproportionately then represented uh, in the military. Top uh, positions in the judiciary, where seventy percent uh, of judges uh, have come from that seven percent privately educated pool. I mean, it's a great marketing signal, isn't it, to the parents that yeah. have paid for? Because they know, you know, I mean, they know what they're buying, right? They know that if they buy a well, privileged education, what, a privileged what, institution, they're going, to, they're going to set their offspring up for a very, a very privileged life.
0: But what's the mechanism? I mean, uh, for example, one possible mechanism is that the private schools simply do a much better job of helping people learn, learn how to learn and do very well uh, through their higher education uh, experiences and through their initial jobs. Yeah. Uh, or is it something uh, more nefarious?
2: Well, I, I think it's more de fairest, but because actually I think it's back to Spee's point about you know, the British class system again. You know, these independent mm. schools, some of them have a uh, you know, a heritage going back to the 13th and even 12th centuries. So mm. if you think about two of the the last four British prime ministers, so start with Gordon Brown, then we had David Cameron, then we had Theresa May, and now we've got Boris Johnson. David Cameron and Boris Johnson both went to the same independent school at Eton at about the same time. Now, Eton dates from the reign of King Richard II. You know, we're looking at the time of the Peasants' Revolt, the sort of 1380s in England. And when you go to those kind of institutions, I mean, they're fine institutions and they have this great history behind them. But they're in no doubt that what they've always been about from the time that they were established was to train the leaders of tomorrow to train. Yeah. The are elite. they
1: are they still are they still boarding schools?
2: Yeah, because they're very successful at obviously selling those places to overseas uh, pupils. Right. And that's why you've had, I mean, <laughs> you know, the irony is about Britain, you know. I mean, it's probably, I mean, in terms of its independent school sector, including Oxbridge, I mean, it's probably disproportionately as well produced. More dictators than uh, any uh, <laughs> uh, other country. I mean, you think about the likes of Idi Amin, for example, in Uganda. Uh, uh, you know, Jong of course, famously went to school in Switzerland. Uh, not uh, so, so Tom, I, you um,
0: you managed to overcome this, um, and uh, I want I wanted to ask about you, how you did it. And also um, one area that maybe these uh, schools and these elite areas uh, are not as strong in is in business entrepreneurship, perhaps, I don't know, maybe finance. Um, And so I want you to fold in that uh, question on the issue of whether there is Um, a tendency to look down on people who are business entrepreneurs, which I believe was the case, at least in some periods of your history.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's probably less so these days, uh, but it's back to this, you know, a, a, a system that's underpinned by academic snobbery. So it's not just the fact that we've got a system that often looks down on people who work in business or entrepreneurs. It has a a particular, unlike, you know, I've experienced in the U S for example, where you can meet entrepreneurs who will celebrate their business failures as much as their business successes here. It's, there's still a stigma attached to business failure, even if you've gone on to succeed. Uh, So there's a different sort of cultural um, dynamic, but you know, I, I think the British commentator and sociologist David Goodhart summed this up very well in his most recent book called Head, Hand, and Heart, where you know, he looks at the, the whole issue of you know, the massive increase in university participation. 50% of under 30-year-olds now go to university in Britain. But you know, the way he kind of describes it is we just, you know, we just haven't valued those people who make their living using their hands, in the caring professions, using their hearts. Uh, And we've kind of become obsessed with what he calls the cognitive class. You know, this kind of, um, I mean, in the sense, this is a move on from the Register General's scale of class, very rigid structures I was talking about at the start of this interview. And, you know, he's dividing the world into this notion of we're valuing the skills and aptitudes of people who use their brains to earn a living, uh, you know, the knowledge workers. And what we're neglecting is what I've called the know-how workers, you know, in my writing in the past. So in other words, we've privileged the, you know, the knowledge economy instead of the know-how economy, when in fact, actually, that's a false choice. We need to value people and occupations that come together to create a civilised society that delivers the important skill around know-how and application of knowledge and also abstract knowledge, which in my view is good in itself. You know, we don't have to have a kind of a, uh, again, a false argument, uh, a utilitarian argument that you know, the only purpose of university is to produce people for the labor market. I mean, we have politicians now standing up and saying, oh, we've got to reform our universities because they're not delivering people who, who, who have um, employability skills. Well, obviously, in a mass higher education system, you don't want tens of thousands of graduates coming out that are completely unemployable. But equally, you know, I do want, coming back to the Oxbridge uh, discussion, I do want a young person who's absolutely fascinated with the period of the Plantagenet British history or the Anglo-Saxons or medieval art or the Renaissance period I want them to feel they can go to a top university and just study that for its own sake, because we need those people in our society as well. So, um, you know, we've reached a point, I think. I mean, it's what David Goodhart calls peak head. You know, we've kind of reached this tipping point now, I think, in public policy discourse and in educational policy discourse, where we're looking at a rebalancing of policy, a rebalancing of investment and a rebalancing of attention, I think, away from just an obsession of, 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 of mass higher education and saying, why aren't we valuing more the skills of those people right. that want to pursue other other routes sure. other than just via university?
0: So Tom, I, I, you know, we're moving
2: along. Uh, well, sorry, if I'm talking too way. much, Bob, so no, you no, just tell
0: no, me to, no, have to no, shut it's up. Wonderful. Oh, it's wonderful. But I did want to get into some other some other topics. Um, sure. Uh, the two that, uh, well, the three that come to mind are uh, your starting your work in the Blair administration, your elected role in um, in Brighton Hove, and your involvement in the uh, Brexit movement. So yeah. let's let's take those in turn
2: that's it's quite a long years. arc of history that's about that, that 20 years that's, that's about 20 years I think yeah
1: <laughs> and I and I still don't I, I don't want to let this other one uh, go without uh, sort of completing the picture of how does one uh, get vocational education in in the
2: UK today so, yeah um, today it's It's via the apprenticeship route. And Bob and I have had many conversations over the years. He's studied the English system. He probably knows as much about it as I do from an academic point of view about the journey uh, in England um, in terms of the expansion uh, of apprenticeships. But it is a, you you have a very kind of well-trodden path for 50% of the population, which is coming out of key stage or year 12 Uh, getting A-levels, advanced levels here in England, and then that's the passport to university. The other 50% have a a myriad of opportunities. Apprenticeship is one of them. Going straight into a job without any further training is obviously another option, although very few 16 to 24-year-olds manage that these days. The the, the youth aspect of, I think, Western labour markets has changed massively. Uh, Most people are joining... The labour market in a serious way, and they're only twenties these days, which is very—you um, know in stark contrast to Switzerland, for example, where two thirds of under twenty-four year olds are doing the apprenticeship, they're doing the uh, the learning and earning route. But Bob, coming back to your kind of twenty-year uh, arc of history in terms of my personal biography, I mean, it, so you know, at the age of twenty-four. You know, I remember sitting in, uh, you know, in Number 10 Downing Street, in one of the uh, many conference rooms, state rooms they have there with you know, Tony Blair uh, at the head of the table and Alistair Campbell, you know, his famous spin doctor not very far away from him. But I was there because I was supporting the education secretary, a man called David uh, Blunkett. And you know, this was shortly after the Famous landslide victory in 1997, and of course, you know, as a 24-year-old, I had to look back at the last 10 years of my life then, and and really pinch myself because 10 years previous to that, uh, I was in foster care in you know a post-industrial English town, one that had been very affected by the Thatcherite reforms of the 1980s. You know, coal mines had closed down in my local community. A lot of these Car factories, not least because they'd been state subsidised during the 1970s, were also closed down. A lot of manufacturing was going off to then the emerging China. So, you know, the economic context of the world in which I grew up in was quite harsh. Not not just for me as an individual, but actually for a lot of people who were grown up in my uh, community as part of that sort of... Thatcher revolution, that sort of rebalancing of the British economy away from its traditional industries and manufacturing towards starting that journey towards more of a service-based economy. Um, by the way, in the long arc of history now, I'm less anti-Thatcher that uh, I think now than I was then because I've i realised that for all the bad things that she did, uh, and there are many things that I still disagree with, actually um, taking a uh, you know taking a role in beginning to restructure the British economy, it was going to happen sooner or later. And China was going to rise sooner or later. And frankly, you know, given that we've actually cut our global emissions by 40% since the mid 1990s, we clearly managed to export a lot of pollution um, (laughs) alongside that as well. So, you know, our kids are growing up in cleaner air. So I'm not one of these sort of romantic lefties that looks back to the era of the coal mines and says, you know, we've got to bring them back because that, Actually, that wasn't great for people's health either. So, you know, I come back to this 24 year old in Downing Street, you know, with a, a newly elected prime minister looking back 10 years at where I was. Then the fact that, you know, I didn't um, obviously do very well in that key. In that K to twelve education uh, system. I left with just one O level. It wasn't O level in English, so clearly I learned to read and write. I think that was an important skill. <laughs> now,
1: what is uh, an O level? That's yeah, uh,
2: one
1: achieving achieving uh,
2: mastery. Achieving, yeah, you know, achieving the sort of yeah the standard that's expected is It's a kind of you know pass in terms of your high school high school diploma. I should have really left with at least six O levels, but I only left with one. Uh, O-level uh, in English, which again is ironic because, of course, I represent today the examination boards that are responsible for that system. So, You know, I did get off to a great start, um, but I did have this great experience. I do want to mention this just very briefly because I think it's, you know, it's when I fell in love with North America, Bob. I mean, I, I, you know, as a 17-year-old as a with only one O-level, working at the supermarket, I did then spend a year... Um, working but then also going to night school four nights a week where I did another four well equivalent of four O-levels but it then changed to these new GCSEs which is the equivalent of O-levels the general certificate in secondary education that's what it stands for. Um, So you know I did get a clutch of those qualifications and I also did uh, two A-levels as well um, in um, sociology and in English so A-level stands for Advanced level. So by the time I turned eighteen, um, actually, I was looking around, thinking, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a town just north of Coventry. Uh, I didn't particularly, you know, I could see the peer group that I was friends with. They were, you know, going off and frankly getting it, you know, getting up to no good sometimes. And I'd really wanted to get out of the place where I'd grown up. So I applied to a voluntary scheme uh, in Canada. Uh, in fact, a great guy, uh, a Methodist preacher, actually called Charles Cato, who'd set up a charity and nonprofit in, based in Toronto, called the Frontiers Foundation, and the Frontiers Foundation is still going today. It's part of uh, part of his legacy, even though he's he's moved on. Uh, is um, you know, it was a, a charity and nonprofit that essentially worked in. What we would now call uh, indigenous first peoples reservations. Uh, so, I was dispatched out to northern Alberta to work on a community project, and and really that was the big sort of awakening uh, for me because I realised that actually, I mean, look, you know, I have this phrase now about my educational failure, and Sve might like this one, and and that is. You know, I say that schooling killed off my desire to learn, you know, the process <laughs> of schooling. You know, what I've, Ivan Illich famously referred to as de-schooling society, right? So I make a distinction between schooling and then I go on to say, but education transformed my life, right? So it's why I'm so passionate about education because I value what education can do for societies. And indeed, I absolutely you know, agree with what HG Wells the you know, author of War of the Worlds famously said, he was also a Labour candidate, by the way, during the a Labour Party candidate during the um, 1945 general election in, in Britain. Uh, but H.T. Wells said that, uh, you know, civilisation was a race between education and catastrophe. Right. So, you know, for me. I You know, I really, really value the importance of education and education for its own sake not just you know education for the world of work although that's really important as well in terms of good technical and vocational education so back to the 24 year old you know I had to pinch myself when I was sitting there in number 10 down the street you know with a newly elected prime minister thinking about that that journey not just the personal journey for me but also for the country because the whole reason why Tony Blair was elected and why he won a landslide was because you know, New Labour was a project that was about trying to reconcile aspects of the Thatcherite revolution, You know, the acceptance of in large um, sways- market, of,
0: market forces.
2: The market market forces, the use of sort of quasi markets in the public services. But it was also this sort of concept of social justice where actually you know, um, challenging, kind of previous conservative doctrine where they seem to be more than happy to sort of spend and borrow money on the bills of what we called economic and social failure, when actually what the Blairite agenda was about was to say, well, these are two sides of the same coin, right? We need a dynamic market economy. We need business people, entrepreneurs. We need people paying their taxes because ultimately it's those taxes that pay for the public goods and for the public services that we want to see um and you know that's that was the sweet spot I mean I call that now actually you know I think that's the radical center of British politics uh it's why I would describe myself these days you know I'm not you know I I don't consider myself never have actually a sort of a socialist I consider you know myself a radical centrist you know I'm in that sort of tradition and not liberal either because you know I think that's a different kind of centrism um but it is a a an acceptance that you know the market has a place uh, in society, uh, as indeed does the state. There is such you know because Margaret Thatcher famously said, didn't she, in the nineteen eighties, "There's no such thing as society. There's only individuals and their families." Mm-hmm. And so those of us who are on the centre left of politics kind of rejected that notion, um, and instead you know grounded our political. Philosophy and ideology more in this. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, the the great American writer, uh, Etzioni, you know, who writes about responsive communitarianism. You know, I've always sort of been very sympathetic to that more uh communitarian sort of view of uh, society and politics. You know, you see it in Israel with kibbutzism, you know, for example, which is kind of, you know, it's got a. Yeah, although
0: the kibbutz is. Uh
2: yeah but <laughs> i'm not you know mind. but i'm not fond really I'm, it, by the way yeah yeah great great <laughs> but you know but i suppose you know the point is, is 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 it's not market it's not state and there's something to be found i think in the values of communitarianism mm-hmm. not of the authoritarian sort of strand but of i think this sort of notion of mutual you know mutualization mutual institutions yeah, and, and have, in a, the US have a place term. to. Play
0: mediating institutions or intermediate yeah civil society. institutions yeah. churches civil society and so on yeah um, I you know we could go on and on on, on this Yeah, question, sure but I do want uh, you to uh, give some of our viewers who <clears throat> are not well versed uh, in the in the way brexit evolved and how an intelligent person like you, uh, not uh, anti-immigrant or anything like that could um, favor it because um, some writers here kind of link uh, Brexit to the uh, election of Donald Trump. And um, so tell us about how you came to view uh, brexit what your involvement in it was and yeah. also how uh, you campaigned mm. when you campaigned what what did you experience from people's views so first your
2: view, yeah. you, and
0: then uh, but
2: Bob I mean I think you know you gave it away slightly like, when you said oh Tom, you know how could you have voted for brexit I mean I'm, I know that's still the kind of standard New York Times sort of shock horror you know who are these you know who are these British people that voted to leave this uh supranational construct called the european uh union and do you know what even to this day i still feel that people on both sides of the atlantic and 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 certainly you know our ruling elites here still don't really get what brexit was about and, and i'll explain um, shortly in terms of what i mean by that because you know, at one level, people look at it as just an argument between, um, you know, a group of kind of, you know, the ruling elite that were very happy to be part of this you know, European sort of super club set up after the, the end of the Second World War. Britain was a relative late joiner, of course, famously rejected by Charles de Gaulle twice <laughs> uh, before, eventually joining in the mid 1970s. Um, and somehow, this kind of community of sort of left behind. Aggrieved people, you know the kind of base that Donald Trump was trying to appeal to, you know, during the 2016 uh, pre- um, presidential election. Indeed, I was there with you and uh, <laughs> Ariella in your fine house yeah,
0: when we, we were surprised.
2: DC, when we watched watched the result, but I don't think the two, I mean, as seismic as those two political events are. They're not at all directly comparable. And let me tell you why. And it comes back to my love of British history and in particular, English radical history. And, you know, anyone that studied, you know, the social history of England from about the period of, uh, you know, Magna Carta, 1215 onwards to the, you know, the Levellers. This was a sort of late middle age uh, movement that was, challenging the aristocracy it was challenging the land enclosures this results around about this you know the 16th and 17th centuries into these social movements um in england that you know result actually in our own civil war you know we had it some hundreds of years uh before your own civil war but effectively it was over the issue of um uh you know where sovereignty in our in our polity, where it lay, did sovereignty lie in the the hands of of the king, of a monarch and his immediate nobility, or actually the concept of sovereignty, does that actually rest, albeit, you know, arguably still in an abstract way, but it it rests in the hands and in the lives of the people. Uh, And indeed, there's this fascinating parliamentary debate, you know, in 1642, uh, just during the period of the English Civil War where Parliament having decided that you know, it's, 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 it's going to go to war with the king it's going to assert its parliamentary authority over the king's uh, tyrannical um, nature uh, you know, passed an ordinance that made it very clear that the, you know, the sovereignty of the land rests in the common good of the people Uh, And that is still the doctrine now that drives the the notion of it's the House of Commons in our parliamentary system that is the supreme lawmaking body of the land. So when you begin to understand, you know, the construct of our governance through the lens of our own social history. Now, of course, you know, we were still hundreds of years away at that point, joining the civil war from... um, you know, from from popular uh, national sovereignty, you know, the notion of one person, one vote, and everybody getting the vote. You know, women didn't get the vote in this country until 1928. Working class people, i.e. the non-propertyed, non-landowning people, didn't get the vote until 1842. And then again, um, uh, in the 1870s, when there was, uh, if you like, universal manhood uh, franchise uh, in Britain, women... Uh, well, many women were still excluded uh, from the vote until 1928. But why I talk about this story and why it's really important for Brexit is because the whole issue about the relationship between a parliamentary government, parliamentary sovereignty, as I've explained, and a supranational entity called the European Union that over many decades has, in effect undermined that 1642 ordinance of the house of commons being you know the supreme legislative chamber for the country elected by us the people therefore they are exercising the power that 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 we give to them every five years on our behalf and then at the time of the general election and the parliament is dissolved in our constitution, in effect, it's an unwritten constitution, but it's there in the ordinances, sovereignty returns back to the people and then the people decide who they want to be their representatives in the parliamentary government. So the whole point about Brexit is this irreconcilable notion of accountable government and unaccountable Elites and um, unaccountable governments. So, so, but but Brussels let's was... say
0: let's say evolution wise. I mean, what what happened was people really thought of it as first a trade. It's it's quite what we used to call thin entering wedge. That you start from a narrow and you go into the broad. Uh, you you started out um, as you know a trade situation. Let's trade with. Well, it, uh, it starts out. And, yeah. Well, so I mean, it starts so out, of course, you had know. Had for the fact, yeah. What's wrong
1: with that? Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. But then it, it evolved way past
2: that, right? Yeah, wow. I mean, it, yeah. So I mean, it it you know, it starts out. I mean, actually, um, and I've I mean, as you know, Bob, I've got a master's degree in European public policy, and I think that was the other thing that shocked a lot of people. You know, how could this very well educated person who's actually you know done a Erasmus master's program, you know, studied at the University of Copenhagen, studied at the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia, you know, could hold these very trenchant views. But it was to do with the fact that, you know, working class history in this country has always been about that those who make the laws of the land, we need to be able to get rid of them. I mean, that has been the whole kind of you know, working class struggle for parliamentary democracy um, in Britain. So, which is interesting, because actually when you look at the Labour Party in the 1970s, the Labour Party, its official policy was and um, uh, to actually be against the European economic community. You know, the Labour government, led by Harold Wilson, uh, was against joining the EEC. And in fact, when they won the election in 1974, that's what triggered then a referendum, we technically already joined. But then the Labour government, uh, because you know the cabinet was the Labour cabinet was divided on joining the European Economic Community, uh, then went to the country with Af. Because that's the other thing a lot of people don't realise: we've you know, the Brexit referendum in twenty sixteen was actually the second referendum we'd had on the question of Europe. the 1975 referendum and i was only four years old at the time so you imagine i didn't participate in that particular (laughs) (laughs) democratic plebiscite um and you know see i think you've touched on it in terms of the you know the trading clubs so there were those you know and again you've got to look at it in the context of where britain was at the time in terms of its economy you know we were literally at that point just a couple of years off from a international monetary fund loan you know the The country was was virtually bankrupt. There was a lot of industrial strife. So for the proponents of the EEC, the European Economic Community, the common market, it was sold to the British people in that 1975 referendum as this will make you richer. This will make the country richer. There'll be more jobs. There'll be more trade opportunities. And of course, you know, who would disagree with that? And actually, I mean, I make the joke about it being four years old in 1975. I think if I was... Had been forty-four years old in nineteen seventy-five. I think I would have voted to join. Uh, yeah, everybody was in favour. of The economic unity, yeah. Um, but then it evolved because, of course, you know, the European Union, which, of course, doesn't become, you know, the the uh, the construct of the European Union technically until uh, the Lisbon Treaty. It's really the Lisbon Treaty that gives it this. Uh, this new construct of the European Union and this idea of the, uh, it's called the Acquis, which is the supranational body of law that's then overseen by the uh, European Court of Justice. So Bob, you know, it's when I've had conversations with you and um, our American friends, I think you're the ones I met at the Urban Institute when I did a little seminar on this and, you know, it was challenged, I think, you know, by a lot of those liberal people in the room. Well, you know, why would you vote for Brexit? You know, why would you campaign for the um, for Brexit. Uh, you know, the proposition I put back to you is let's imagine in the 1970s, a president of yours had uh, you know, done a deal with Canada, you know, a bit like the NAFTA deal with, with, with Canada, with Mexico, and with a bunch of other South American countries. But then fast forward to the millennium, the, the turn of the millennium, and that president was saying to you, well, I know you want to take some of these social issues and economic issues and consumer issues to the US Supreme Court, but I'm sorry, but there's now a court that sits over the US Supreme Court that could uh, know, um, put legally binding rulings on the federal government, on state-level governments. Uh, and, and, and that's what happened you know, with the European- Well, it
1: wasn't justice. just the court, right? It was, it was the uh, European Parliament as well.
2: Well, what the European Parliament was able to do was essentially pass laws that that um, that essentially rubber stamped the directives uh, from the European Commission, which is the executive arm of the European Union. So actually, the you know, I mean, again, it's a misnomer, and I've heard you know some quite educated people often talk about, oh well, yeah, but you've got the European Parliament. That's a democratic institution. No, it's not because the European Parliament. Does not have the power to initiate legislation the congress has the power to not only initiate uh, new legislation but it can also repeal legislation now the president in your uh, system of separation of powers with the executive branch the judicial branch and the legislative branch ultimately obviously the president could veto uh, legislation that's coming from the legislative branch but in the european union concept um, construct it's the unelected commission that that actually initiates the legislation, they get a, you know, a sort of rubber stamp from the Council of Ministers, which is made up of the democratically elected leaders uh, of the the members, but all the initiation comes from the Commission. Uh, The Commission then puts that legislation to the European Parliament, and it's a straightforward take it or leave it piece of legislation it's not you can amend the legislation you can repeal other legislation you could have a system of oh one regulation in and then one regulation out it's 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 a one-way street right and in that sense it has more in common in my view as someone that studied the European institutions I've worked in Brussels for a short while as well after I graduated so I saw you know the system up up close in Brussels um I think it has more in common with, you know, the old Soviet Union and, and actually, you know, today's China. You know, you could look at these annual meetings and congresses and you know, tens of thousands of people are traveling to Beijing to participate in Chinese style democracy with or, you know, Chinese socialism with democratic characteristics, however they describe their particular system. So, you know, it's back to my 1642 ordinance and the reason why we had a civil war right was the concept that there is no entity other than a constitutional monarch that is there by the consent of the people right and that is something that is very unique about i mean i you know i appreciate to americans obviously fought fought, you know fought the british over the abolition of monarchy right and tyrannical kings but still (laughs) you know it's a system that we've evolved over a thousand years where we accommodate a unelected head of state, but we have you know, the supremacy and the sovereignty is in the house of commons, right? Is in the, the hands of ordinary people. That is the supreme legislative. So, okay. so
0: Tom, so, let, let me ask you, let me ask you did, uh, so um, how do you think it's worked out? I mean, it's too early to say probably, but so far, Um, is is the
2: issue kind of closed
0: at this point and
2: uh, no because again you know Brexit is is a process Uh, you know it's not just the event it's not the event of the referendum in 2016 or the fact that we only actually formally I mean it's taken us five years to to leave this supranational club it's cost us a you know it's cost us a whole stack of money I mean I liken it to the it's what we called the Danegeld you know during the uh, Anglo-Saxon wars with the invading Danes in the ninth century you know for for many years we just you know, we had to pay them off and then in the end it came to one almighty battle and the you know we got rid of the kind of you know the the, the Viking Danish influence over uh, uh, our lives so you know Brexit is a process but look if there was one book I was going to write Bob it would probably be you know Brexit the Unfinished Revolution because Whilst, you know, for me, Brexit was about who makes our laws and parliamentary sovereignty, and by the way, it wasn't really about immigration. I mean, I, you know, I know the debate is, uh, look, I mean, I know Nigel Farage, right, you know, I got to know him very well. I've I've had many an argument with him personally about his obsession uh, with migrants um, and immigration. I've never taken that view, and I'm not going to deny that there weren't, you know, there weren't sort of, you know, probably racists who are emboldened by the referendum vote who voted for brexit for solely those reasons but i don't think you can call 17.4 million people which is the biggest number of voters that have ever voted for anything you know not even british governments have been voted in with that level uh, of support i don't think you can call them all racist by by any shot i mean you know Likewise, the 16 million people that voted to remain in the European Union. I wouldn't accuse any of you know, I would say that they all voted just to remain because they're all closet Euro federalists, you know, that want Britain to adopt the Euro and want a United States of Europe. I think it's, you know, these, it's too, it's, it's too, it's too crude an argument. Um, so it is a process. And, you know, given that something like 60% of our laws up until last year were being written in Brussels. It's going to take some time, right, as we adjust to this new reality where all of a sudden we're making laws where we don't have to refer to the European Court of Justice or, or to, uh, you know, the technocrats. Well, what,
0: what about... In Brussels? So let
2: me just give you two two very, um, very kind of practical examples uh, of, of actually where Brexit's made a difference already. So the vaccine rollout, right, until just before the pandemic britain was bound by the european medicines agency obviously we had our own equivalent of the cdc in england but for the commissioning and the procurement of and approval of vaccines that was uh, a competency that was rested at the at the level of the european medicines agency well, obviously we came out of the european medicines agency we've got we've got our own uh National agency. So when you look at Britain's successful, which is up there with the likes of Israel, for example, in terms of our vaccine rollout program, the reason why that was why we were as fast as we were with it, you know, we were more agile than our other European neighbours, EU neighbours, was because we weren't arguing over the procurement process between 27 member states. We were only, you know, procuring the vaccines from the various suppliers ourselves. We were also able to get round because we're no longer members of the European Union. Their uh, pretty neoliberal state aid rules that's you know enabled us, for example, to put public investment into those clinical trials in ways that we wouldn't have been able to when we were members of the European Union. So. There are very practical way, you know, we've been able to, for example, abolish value added tax. This is a goods and sales tax on women's sanitary products under the European Union. You have to have a minimum 5% tax on women's sanitary products. You know, we're able now to set up free ports around the United Kingdom. So these are uh, special economic zones in our coastal areas that we were prevented from doing when we were members of the European Union. So it's,
1: it's parallel in many ways to what we have in the United States between the state governments and and their freedom to act versus the national government, and it, it it's quite interesting that you know the the whole issue of how different states dealt with the COVID crisis. Uh, Trump took the position that the federal government has no role to play and it was entirely well, up I, to the I, states
0: i wouldn't say that he did he did play a big well, role well vaccine he did play a big role in, just vaccine uh, uh, spending the money early on to to support the vaccine yeah. yeah um let's let's close um by talking a little more about you tom and uh uh now that you've Uh, you're still operating as the uh, CEO of the Federation of Warding Bodies um, and uh, getting back into media that apparently you were
1: uh, involved with as a kid. Yeah, we Um, need to get the right references so that our viewers can uh, tune in. Yeah, so... Become part of the 60,000.
2: Yeah, well, look, it's it's worth just highlighting, Bob, and of course, you'll appreciate this. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm here very much talking in a personal uh, capacity. It's uh, uh, I'm not here to represent any any interest actually, other than myself, and that's why it's just been so enjoyable talking to Svea and yourself uh, this evening, just got an opportunity just to you know sound off with my own uh, opinions. But you're right, I you know I do have this very important platform nationally in my day job. You know, I represent the. Examination boards and the awarding organisations that are responsible for not just uh, public examinations in our state school system, but also responsible for tens of thousands of vocational technical qualifications uh, for apprenticeships. And obviously, to do a job like that, you have to be in inverted commas a politician with a small P, right? Because you know, who am I representing? Those members too. I have to deal with ministers in the government with skills and apprenticeship minister with regulators uh, across the uk so my background in government you know my background as an education advisor working with senior civil servants working with ministers obviously comes in 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 handy uh,
1: i would imagine that trade unions have a lot to say about that process of uh licensing or whatever you call it when someone gets
2: passes the exams. Yeah, I mean, the teacher unions, I mean, it's been really interesting during the pandemic, right, because we've had to move from a, a, a public examination system where everybody has to turn up in a gymnasium hall and, and, and write papers to a system where we've had to change the assessment system where teachers actually are more front and center in deciding the grades of their students. Now, we've had two summers, we've had two years where that's been the case. And surprise, surprise, the teacher unions, having been initially, I think, quite a militant group in favour of abolishing public examinations and having, frankly, it pretty much all in the hands of teachers to decide, I think they've had so much grief having to do it. You know, it's pushed a whole new set of responsibilities onto the shoulders of teachers and also accountability in a way that now you know they're dealing with sharp elbows The so-called tiger mums i think you would call them in the us that want the best for their particular son or daughter and you know uh, they're going to the teacher they're going to the head of the year saying what's going on here with my charles's mathematics grades or geography uh, grades so actually the you know, the teacher unions i think are looking forward to getting back to some semblance of normality, where actually these examinations are taken out of the hands of teachers and they're independently marked and they're independently assessed. Uh, But that debate about the secret garden in education, teacher unions wanting to see more of the responsibility in the hands of the teaching profession, and the tension that exists then with politicians and arguably parents as well, who want to see a teaching profession more held to account... And how do you hold them to account when well, you do it through measures like examinations and assessment? But, you know, we're in an interesting place, I think, post-pandemic, where there is a debate, actually quite an active one now in this country, about whether you know, there are new forms of assessment that we can look at that don't put so much emphasis on what's called terminal assessment, you know, uh, end point examinations, where it comes down to how well you did, your memory recall, to sit a particular paper on a particular day, that does seem to be increasingly quite an antiquated way of trying to test knowledge, skills, behaviours, and competence uh, amongst the population. Well, Tom, this has been fascinating. Um, it's been quite wide ranging, isn't it? We've gone quite. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: I think uh, we we could certainly go on. Maybe we'll have you as. Uh, Another oh, guest. We'll uh, have
2: you back when you're prime minister, <laughs> right? Oh, I think, Joe, uh, see, so I think that ship sails uh, <laughs> <laughs> at, at the end of my twenties uh, when I sort of, you know, decided not to go for a, a safe a safe Labour seat. Um, you know, I sort of decided that having worked with members of Parliament for many years and saw how much stick they got in the media and by their constituents it was a kind of job at that point anyway that i was less interested when i ran for parliament you know two years ago uh, as the brexit party candidate i mean that was a great experience but it uh, i i think it brought a at that point it did bring the curtains down on my any future sort of pretensions to well to well, well, well to, yeah. you, uh, you know there's for a now. great for now. Uh, there's a great
0: phrase um, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. I don't think you would go
2: that far. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, just um, to name check, so I, um, on GB News now, which is a national news channel, uh, you have the BBC, you have Sky News, and you have this insurgent newcomer called GB News, uh, which has been set up by the veteran political broadcaster, Andrew Neal. He's known to some uh, American viewers not least because he usually has always presented the British electoral um election yes. coverage on, We've off, seen. On, the, on the BBC but he yes. no longer no longer works for the BBC uh, And and that's what I'm saying about you know in a sense I've put the political career to one side obviously got a job day job representing um a group of interests but I think it's acknowledgement you know of the role I played during Brexit and you know, putting my head above the parapet, the, the writings that I've done on not just uh, technical vocational education, but on Brexit as well, and the importance of it. That you know, it's, again, it's a great privilege to be given a you know a national platform in the media to be able to talk about the stories that matter to most ordinary people, and it's great to be able to be part of a TV channel. You know, it's had a billion views in the last ten weeks. It's actually getting audience figures that are better than the BBC News Channel now, and better than Sky wow. News. Because how do
0: people get on, how do people get on that channel from the US? Let's say. But
2: well, it's on YouTube, so it's it's not behind any paywall or uh, uh, any particular cyber barrier. Okay. So yeah, yeah. If you just look up GB News on uh, YouTube, you can access it that way and i'm always on the uh, monday night show although i'm going to be swapped to um tuesday next week because we've got a public holiday on monday it's our last bank holiday of the year last public holiday of the year so um uh, yeah i'll be on the show again next tuesday
0: well tom we'll, we'll,
2: uh, we'll have to have that information at our website
0: right yeah, <laughs> yeah. tom it's been uh, wonderful as it always is when we have a chance to chat and i'm glad that uh <laughs> the wisdom that you provide uh, when we talk directly uh, now is going out to uh, our our uh, whole podcast and YouTube channel as well. Yeah. So Yeah. Great to, to minute, see Zvi. you both. Zvi has a uh, the way we uh, finish our programs. Go on, what then. do you say, Tve?
1: We say <laughs> Zigezunt. Which is
0: for the for non Yiddish
1: listeners, which means uh, be well,
2: right?
1: Really goodbye,
2: yeah. And uh, so, uh, that's it, Zygesund. 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 Okay. right? I shall remember that. And see, I'm looking forward to catching up with you in person when I do eventually make it across. Oh, this. yes, I, really that'd be great. And, um, right. Bob, you know, thoughts and best wishes to you and everybody at uh. The Lerman household in Washington, DC. All right. Thanks. Thanks, thanks very much. Bye. Bye.